You're listening to the New City Church Podcast. These episodes are recorded live on Gadigal land. Sometimes the audio quality might not be perfect because what you're listening to is a conversation. We don't edit out the chatter. We think that's what makes it authentic. Wherever you're tuning in from, we hope you find this episode encouraging. Tonight we're going to be talking about gender and Christianity. Uh, hot topic. Yeah, love the enthusiasm. Um, also want to just acknowledge it's a sensitive topic too. Uh, it is for me. Um, we can get into perplexing, potentially unknown spaces as well. We might go there. I think we will go there. Um, sure, we'll find out. Uh, potentially confronting places. Um, I think issues of gender uh, may be so meaningful to you that they either make or break your faith in God. Uh, gender might be that significant for you. There are uh, issues of justice and injustice involved. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that it's a really fun topic. It's a really big topic. It's a sensitive and potentially confronting topic. Um, what we always say here at New City is what is said from the front is always the start of a conversation. Uh, it's the start that springboards a whole other conversation. So I hope that tonight will be the start of us having a really wonderful, meaningful convo together. Um, yeah, I'm keen. Um, we also have the value here that it's okay to disagree, um, but to disagree with love and respect and openness for the other person with whom you may disagree. Um, so that's where you are. Um, and I just thought it might be nice as we come into this space uh, just to take a few deep breaths. Uh, you might like to close your eyes as we do that. You might like to keep them open. Um, but let's just take a few deep breaths together. And I just want you to tune into yourself, how you're feeling, how you're going. And then I want you to try and tune into how the person next to you might be feeling or the person across the room might be feeling. And in this space, I'm just going to pray for us tonight. Um, beautiful God who is beyond gender. Beautiful God who expresses love and compassion and grace and mercy and reconciliation, which aren't gendered things. God who is the goodness of femininity and masculinity. God, would you help us to have a thriving, honouring, meaningful discussion tonight? I pray for Sammy and for Rosie and for myself I pray for this beautiful community that is gathered here and online. God, may we come to know you and the beautiful people and world you have created better tonight. May we be formed into people of love and may we come away tonight being more like Jesus. Amen. Uh, a few little logistics. Um, I'm going to try and keep our conversation. Last time we did 
a panel like this. It was on um, sex, sexuality and relationships. It was great for those of you who are here. It was awesome. Um, but I think we like really banged on quite a bit because like everyone was like really keen on the conversation. So tonight we're going to keep it to an hour discussion. Um, I've got some questions that I think because we love to talk, will probably take us to about 40 minutes. So then there'll be a space about 20 minutes at the end. And I'd love to hear some of your questions at that point. Otherwise, I'll just keep relishing having these two to talk to uh, at that point. Um, feel free to move around the space as you want to. Uh, tea and coffee, refills. There's a bathroom out the back. There are also more bathrooms through this door. Um, and yeah, just on the sensitive nature of where we go, I just want to, you know, move around as you need to if, you know, you're a bit uncomfortable with what's being talked about. Um, oh, this is awkward. I was just about to introduce you, Sammy. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to go to Rosie. I'm going to introduce our panel. Um, you, you, you. Uh, Rosie Claire Shorter, wherever you want to be. Move around as you want. You. Um, Rosie's pronouns are she, her. Uh, Rosie, do you prefer Rosie or Rosie Claire? Okay, Rosie Claire, Rosie. Uh, Rosie Claire is a feminist researcher interested in gender, sexuality, religion, and post-humanism. Uh, she's currently a PhD candidate uh, in the Religion and Society Research Cluster at Western Sydney University. Uh, her PhD research has focused on gender, sexuality, and evangelism in the Sydney Anglican Diocese. Uh, she's previously completed a Bachelor of Creative Arts and a Master of Research at Macquarie University in the Department of Media, Music, Communications, and Cultural Studies. It's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 2016, fun fact, she received a Faculty of Arts Highest Achiever and a Unit of Study Award for the unit Feminism, Queer Theory, and the Problem of Identity. Love to unpack that later. Uh, she's an avid reader of Sarah Ahmed, a persistent reader of Rosie Bredotti. I pronounced that right. Uh, and a recent convert to feminist trauma theologies and critical menstruation studies. Uh, Rosie Claire has a weakness for Jane Austen adaptations, statement earrings, as we see tonight, uh, writing ridiculously long sentences and show tunes. And you can follow Rosie on Twitter at R-O-I-E, where she mostly tweets about how she dislikes editing her PhD as well as all the things we're told not to talk about, which is sex, politics and religion. Love that, Rosie. Welcome. You. Thank you. <laughs> it's so nice to have you. Yeah, I'm stoked. Uh, our second panellist... Uh, is Sammy Sheed, Samantha Sheed. You! You! Uh, pronouns, she, her. Uh, Sammy is a trans woman about two years into her medical and social transition. She has an advanced diploma of performing arts and had been performing overseas and in Sydney for four years before stopping to pursue her transition. Uh, after meeting so many wonderful and strong LGBTIQA plus people in the performing arts space, while still attending mostly conservative churches, she grew increasingly uncomfortable with how harshly queer people were being treated in many churches. Uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, however, was when she discovered her own gender identity and could not stay silent any longer. 
She has since developed a passion for the well-being and care of queer people in churches. For that, we're so grateful, Sammy. Uh, New City has been a godsend in this regard, and she sees the community as a haven for those hurt by the church, as well as a catalyst for pursuing real change in the larger Christian community. If you want to get her talking, just bring up any kind of jazz, fusion, or musical theatre. Welcome, Sammy. You! And finally, as a very minimal intro to me, um, because you've just... So substantially long. I feel like yours should be equally as long. <laughs> I mean, I tried, but yeah. Anyways, I've been banging on for a little while. My name is Steph Fenton. My pronouns are they, them. I'm one of the co-founders and co-pastors of this beautiful church community here, New City Church. Um, over the last few years, also, I should mention Joel is uh, one of our co-pastors as well. Shout out to Joel. Um, over the last few years, I've realised my gender identity is genderqueer, gender fluid or non-binary within that space. Uh, and Sammy, I rolled off you. You said you are about two years into a social and medical transition. I'd say maybe I'm about one year into mine and actually really looking forward to a gender affirming surgery later this year. Uh, I've also just completed a Master's of Divinity through the University of Divinity, where I wrote an exegetical thesis, which was very fun, on male entitlement, toxic masculinity, eunuchs, and gender expansiveness in Matthew 19.12, which I'm hoping to publish as a book later this year. Yep. Welcome, Steph. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I've been joking a lot that this is a world-class panel, and we've had a few jokes this week that this is a world-class panel. Uh, world-class panel, am I saying that right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I don't actually genuinely think there are many other places in the world where we would see a cis woman, a trans woman, and a non-binary human, uh, all three of whom are very passionate about our faith and the church doing better, uh, being platformed within a church uh, to have a conversation about gender and Christianity together. So we are officially a world-class panel. Thank you. Thank you for being part of that. Um, you're both into musical theatre. I just wanted to ask you something really relaxing when we get into here before <laughs> launching into wild questions. Um, what's your favourite or one of your faves? <laughs> and why? I'd say at the moment, um, probably In the Heights. I've gotten back into it very recently. Love that. The movie just came out. Very, very keen on it. Um, also just love a bit of Latin in any kind of music. It's always worthwhile. Um, preferably Manuel Miranda wouldn't sing, but, you know, just got to take the good with the bad. Uh, he's a great writer, not a great singer. Right? This is not an easy question. <laughs> in the Heights is fantastic. I always say the best piece of theatre I've ever seen uh, was War Horse. Um, it is not technically a musical I mean it has music in it um uh it is a brilliant piece of theater that uses people and puppetry and the space and uh musicality so well to tell a story about horses in world war one and whenever you tell people that they look at you like how is that a show <laughs> but it's really good um but probably Les Mis um I worked backstage on Les Mis for a long time and it, it was a show that kind of made me feel like I'd I'd achieved what I needed to achieve uh, working in theatre and I like that 
music theatre is a space where you can be political uh, and that people just accept it and roll with it. Um, and that's exciting. Great. I'm now realising that I chose the completely wrong topic to have a conversation with you both about because it seems like that's a good one too. <laughs> yeah, thank you both. Um, so I'm going to launch in with a very like juicy question. Uh, what is gender? Um, I subscribe to the theory that gender is, uh, how you feel on the inside, very intrinsically tied to how your brain works and how you feel physically about what your body is. Um, in which case would be different from sex, which is then your chromosome will make up your reproductive system makeup and all the like from that. Um, gender identity is on a spectrum for me, uh, male and female are either end, but even that is reductive in the sense that uh, some people don't even feel like they belong on that spectrum at all. It's more just like a nebulous term of, hey, there's people who present female, male, non-binary, but it's all in a hazy space where nothing is really uh, solid. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on gender? Um, so I would add to this idea that gender is an inherent sense of self. Um, one of the most interesting and helpful things I've read recently, uh, two theorists, um, Heather Shipley and Pamela Dickey-Young, who have a phrase where they talk about levels of gender, uh, which I think is a really helpful strategy for helping us to think about how complex gender is and that gender is how you think about yourself and your gendered identity. Um, it's also what you do. So gender can both be an inherent sense of self, which might be you feel like a girl, you feel like a boy, you feel like something else, or it's what you do. So you do activities that are traditionally thought of as masculine or feminine. And in doing those, you are doing femininity or doing masculinity or something else and doing then doing gender. Uh, and gender can also be a social level. So um, I often think that ge about gender as a social category for how we um, understand people. So gender is how we make meaning of sexed bodies. We might get that wrong, but we're always doing that all the time. We're reading humans and categorizing them uh, as to how we've read their gender. Uh, and then it can be a way that we structure societies. So it's a way to think about inequality and why certain bodies and certain people have more access to spaces, more access to power, more access to opportunities. Um, it doesn't necessarily justify those inequalities, but it can be a way of thinking about why inequalities exist. Great start. Um, I wonder, it seems that there is like kind of two things in there about this internal sense of gender, but then potentially gender as a social construct. Do you think they're working against each other or is that just kind of our exploration of gender and where we're at? Um, is that a bit of a too curly or can we answer that? Just you're asking, is gender as a sense of self and gender as a social construct working against the two? Yeah, those two ideas feel like maybe they don't go together or maybe they're very different. Um, are they different theories of how we understand gender or? I think they can go against each other. 
don't think they have to. <laughs> um, I think that the idea of gender as, as, a, as a verb or gender as something you do was something that was really important uh, in uh, both queer and feminist theory in the 90s when people were not first, like when people were articulating uh, the differences between sex and gender and to think about gender as something that was done in the social world or something that made sense in a social context was a way of, of thinking through that split and thinking through the fact that people have sexed bodies with certain body parts, certain chromosomes, certain hormones, and that by and large, we've assumed that certain attributes go with those things. Um, but then there are also times when that doesn't match up. So by differentiating that and thinking about the social meaning, um, you know, that was an important move at that time. I think that certainly queer politics is different now to what it was in the 90s and that for some people being able to tell a coherent story of themselves as having always been something uh, is very important to your sense of self. So, you know, to be able to say, I've always, I've always known I was different. I've always known I was a, a girl, whatever it, your story is, that is also a really powerful narrative for people to be able to understand who they are in the world. But even that's still social because it's your place in the world and how you relate to other people and how people relate to you. Other people won't tell a coherent story of who they are. They will be open about having uh, a gender journey is a phrase some people use um, and, and about how in different spaces they've come to realize certain things about themselves and might say, you know, I used to, I used to be this, now I feel that this is more appropriate for who I am. And I think both those things are valid um, depending on what the ex your own experience is. That's a really nice segue to say what like to ask the question what has your experience of gender been in the world I think for me specifically uh it was just a constant feeling of discomfort and honestly signs hallmark signs of depression without really labeling it as that just because I wasn't aware of what I was feeling or what the cause was I think the experience is like closely linked to socially what was happening in my life was definitely all of the things that I enjoyed and all of the things I interacted with were traditionally feminine things not that that instantly put on my radar, hey, you might have a gender issue. It was more like, oh, hey, I'm just a really effeminate person. That's fine. Um, it was only when that coupled with me, the physical side that I was like, oh, okay, this is something that's deeply rooted in who I am as a person. And then it's also showing up as I feel insanely more comfortable when I'm with people who are like me and performing activities that are socially mending and not mending, like uh, joining with my gender identity and that made it so much more peaceful and so much more smooth in my life. And that's kind of what set it off for me. Then as an experience of gender, just as a generalized thing, I think it was a realization that where I was at, it was the first level of, hey, I know that there is something physically wrong with my body and the way that I interpret that in myself, but everything else on top of that doesn't necessarily denote who I am in the same way that 
there are definitely uh, cis men who enjoy musical theatre, enjoy gardening, whatever, feminine things, and that no less weakens their cisness than me enjoying some traditionally masculine things doesn't weaken the fact that I'm a trans woman. Um, I think that's really important, uh, and that's the way that I've come at it, is just that once I had my gender set, everything else is up to you. Like, do what you want, like what you want. Um, that's not going to affect who you are as a person and who you feel you are. Um, Judith Butler has this term called girling, um, whereby we socialise uh, people declared female to be girls. Uh, and that, so when you think about phrases like she throws like a girl, you run like a girl, you do whatever like a girl, that in that that declaration there's a whole set of assumptions about what it is to be a girl um and that includes dressing and pink and with you know cutesy things and even the fact that like we have the phrase girly but we don't really have a phrase boyy like you might have blokey um but that's different that's an adult male human and it's um whereas girling is, is a child uh that's something you might want to think about <laughs> um so I was girled and um what I think <laughs> that was fine. That worked for me. Um, Sarah Ahmed talks about self-girling and says that, you know, that's not an inauthentic practice. And I, that was a hugely uh, important thing for me to read because I went through this phase in my early 20s where I felt like the, there was like that I needed to kind of mature out of pinkness, that, you know, I, I needed to like stop being a silly, frilly human um and but to to kind of be like oh I can actually self-girl and be feminine and that's fine because it's actually okay to be a woman and it's not second place to being something else um uh and what Butler and Ahmed would say around girling and around gender is that gender is a self-assignment. So you will be declared a gender when you are born, um, but really the, the growing into your gender, and it's the same for everyone, uh, the growing into your gender is a self-assignment. It's something you do, whether you do that in ways that comply with what people expect or whether you carve out your own path. Um, and. I, I've been fairly comfortable on a fairly traditional feminine girly path. <laughs> I like to say I'm defiantly girly. <laughs> yeah, love that. Um, yeah, my, my experience of gender is uh, it's a label that is the, it just it has non-meaning for me. Um, it's something that when I think about what I, who I am and what I do in the world and what you know, what means most to me. I'm just like, gender is this thing that is on the floor, kicked under the mat of like, like, the, yeah. And I understand that it's very meaningful for some people, but for me, yeah, I'm just like, I am who I am, gender, that, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that kind of played out when I was, uh, but but also, 
Yeah. Also, there's a, there's, there is this very internal sense of feeling uh, very restricted into a female category, which I had, which felt really uh, suffocating and uncomfortable. And I look back through like being young and just being like, I just want to wear that. Like, why can't I wear that? But then so gender being this really... Um, like performative thing that we do in the world that like I dress like that, I behave like that, I'm getting attention from the boys, you know, things where I just like I did the thing and then now I'm like, oh, I don't have to do any of that. Um, And I, but then I don't have to do that other thing either because I see a lot of other, you know, stuff happening in the the male corner that I'm like, no, that doesn't feel right either. Um, And so I'm just like... I just want to be a nice human. I want to have friends. I want to go dancing. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, So, yeah, it's interesting for me because gender is just like this real non-category in my experience and what's meaningful for me, um, which I'm sure is very different from your experience, Sammy. It's so important to me. (laughs) Yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. It's interesting because at times it feels so important to me that I'm I I feel like I'm masking for the fact that I just don't want anyone to see me as masculine at all and that's why I care so much about it but I kind of grew more into a space after that was like the first six months where I was panicking deconstructing my gender had no idea what was happening and then I was like okay I'm going to cling so hard to this traditionally socially acceptable version of what woman is because I'm so afraid of someone clocking me clocking in uh, the gender space is definitely determined as if someone tracks you as being what you were biologically born as is deemed clocking and that's very stressful for trans people because if you're presenting in a way that is not aligned with how you were assigned at birth it can be incredibly uh, traumatizing for someone to call you out and basically uh, shout you down in the middle of a shopping center being like I don't like the way you're dressing go home um it's usually a lot more um I was so afraid. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. Um, I was so afraid of being clocked that I was very hard leaning into uh, the feminine gender spectrum, very hard leaning into those social uh, constructs. And that's why the gender was so important to me. But now that I've uh, become more comfortable with uh, presenting as female and more comfortable in my gender identity and more secure in it, it's now not so important. It's just what I am. It's just how I present it's just what I am in the world and then you know being clocked does not bother me as much anymore because I know and in who I am that I am female that is what I am um yeah still important like still definitely who I am but not as important as it used to be yeah and I wonder if that's like a nice space just to reflect on maybe some of the experiences of what gender dysphoria is like because uh, I know a lot of trans and non-binary people will say that once you do recognize and you realize oh that's why that that felt so uncomfortable being put in that box or being felt like I was restricted to only um, be seen in that way in the world Um, you know for me it was I went to this queer Christian conference and they asked me like what are your pronouns for the first time and I was like she her why does that feel so weird why do I feel locked in like please don't box me into that category do I have to just include include one like what the heck is going on for me it was like the first time that I clocked this sense of 
oh, I actually really don't like being locked into that female box. Like what's going on there? Um, and I think like it's a potentially common like kind of trans experience that when you once you figure out what that means of like actually the way that people are interpreting me in the world and the gender that they're assigning to me feels incredibly uncomfortable and I feel this sense of being different, um, then all of a sudden it hits you like, I actually don't feel comfortable in my body and the way that my body looks. And that can be uh, a really uncomfortable, distressing experience to look in the mirror and see that you uh, look a certain way. Um, you know, that, that for me is, yeah, is kind of has been my experience. And I've heard a lot of other people talk about that. I don't know if you feel a bit comfortable sharing. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not a comfortable feeling, but I'm comfortable sharing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's different for everyone. Everyone experiences gender dysphoria in different ways. I know a lot of people ex uh, experience it in a very socially heavy way that if someone, uh, again, just misgenders them or if they assume they're into certain things or when they're in certain spaces doing what feels socially comfortable to them, people assume that they shouldn't be there. That pops up in some way for some trans people. Um, other people, and for me specifically, it is a very physical thing. Um, like I'm incredibly self-conscious about my height. I'm incredibly self-conscious about my hands and my feet. Um, and that's very hard to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's very hard to deal with uh, just like having mirrors around is a really stressful experience. And it does feel like it can control your life at times. And it does feel very all-encompassing at times. Um, from that, I think is a really, it, it sucks, but I think it's a very important part of being trans and it's a very important part of the journey is recognizing those things and then recognizing that for me specifically, there are some things that I, I won't be able to change. Like I can't get shorter. I can't have smaller hands. I can't, you know, change skeletal things about my body. That's just going to stay there. And then I haven't got to this point yet, but the point of, hey, because I'm so confident in my gender identity and who I am, this is actually a good thing. Like I am unique in my own way. The way that my body is, is the way that my body is. And I need to learn how to love that. And I need to learn how to exist in that in a peaceful way. Um, yeah. I can't wait for that day for you, Sammy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and an important thing just to say that, you know, that's like not everyone's experience is to have gender dysphoria or to feel uncomfortable in your body. Um, people experience it very differently. Um, I wanted to kind of shift to this, like some of the, um, you know, teachings that we hear in the church around gender and sex um, and how there's like this, this God-given design of male and female, very rigid binaries. Some people would have been exposed to, uh, you know, you know, male, males are the, have the authority and are the head of the family in the church. Other people would have just kind of seen different forms of uh, this is how we be male, this is how we be female. Um, and, yeah, this thinking that gender diverse people are, you know, or people who expand any form of notion around those roles are actually breaking a godly design. Um, I <laughs> Why are you hang, hanging your head there, Rosie? Yeah. Um, but I just, I wanted to, 
like, I don't know, what do you think about that? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Um, but also maybe even more specifically, like this notion that your sex and your gender are very determined, that they're binary, that there are roles that need to happen. Like, um, yeah, I just want to talk about, I kind of want to talk about what do you think is the relationship between sex and gender? What do you think God's design for gender is? You know, some of those questions, and I'm not sure where to go with it first. Um, but then also, where do you, do those things come from the Bible or from God? Um, who wants to land off there? Have I not, have I? No, I'm trying to work out what the best entry point to this question yeah, is. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Yeah. Yeah, variety of thoughts. Uh, so one, like the, the the Christian linking of male headship or authority and feminine submission is rubbish. Like we'll start there. Um, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> we could finish there. <laughs> uh, Yes. Um, I mean, what's, what's interesting to me in that is that it's, it's an invention. So what we understand for, and this is where gender is social and cultural and historical, because what we hear when we hear things about men's authority, like particularly husbands' authorities and wife's submission, because that is what it's not so much men and women, but husbands and wives. Like it's a hot, it's a historical moment when that became such an important thing for the church. Um, and there were huge cultural shifts uh, around the Protestant Reformation, um, the uh, Enlightenment movement through Europe, and that were really in step with one another, which kind of divided society into um, two spheres, the public and the private, and kind of declare, and this is a secular, so Joan Scott, uh, who's a feminist philosopher, has a great book called Sex and Secularism from 2018, uh, which goes through this uh, invention of secularism and basically says that secularism uh, invents gender inequality as we know it today. Um, And by dividing society into public and private and by making public spaces men's spaces and private spaces women's spaces and it has this whole system of binary thought uh, so you have public private man woman um uh you know rational emotional uh good and bad they're all kind of linked up and all the good things are on the masculine side and all the degraded things are on the feminine side and that includes uh you know being too sexual you know women are somehow simultaneously overly sexual and tempting and they're also meant to be the keepers of purity and morality and uh I've forgotten what your question was and what point I'm trying to make, but that kind of cultural shift lines up with the Protestant Reformation, which sees um, what a downgrading in the, the religious role of the priest um, and an upgrading in the religious role of the Protestant husband. Uh, and those things are kind of tied together. Uh, Protestantism endorses the, the public-private split of secularism, gives it religious value, 
makes it sacred. Uh, and then we have a whole problem whereby there are certain things that men do and certain things that women do, and it becomes a sign and a mark of your faith. Um, and it's rubbish. <laughs> yeah. And my understanding of that movement is that like the church kind of operates in quite a broad space in society and then kind of moves a little bit uh, to the side. And then that's when the emphasis on family structures become really essential. And it's where we kind of get even the, the church being emphasized as a family where men are the authority and we kind of get that family language is like in that movement too, if I'm correct. Yeah, um, because, I mean, I'm not a historian, so if, if Karen Pack was here, she'd probably correct me on so many things. But, um, you know, with the, um, I just borrow other theorists work. <laughs> Janet Jacobson, uh, what's the article called? Sex plus freedom equals regulation. Why? I think. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so the theorist is Janet Jacobson talking about how before the Protestant Reformation, the kind of religious ideal for sexuality was monastic celibacy. That was the, that was the ideal. The norm was always marriage because norms and ideals don't always match up and there were very kind of convenient uh, financial reasons for why you marry. Um, after the Reformation, um, where, you know, we downgrade monasteries uh, and the Protestant reformers closed lots of convents, lots of monasteries, which, of course, as Steph, you probably encountered this, I think, in maybe in your research, uh, that in closing monasteries and convents, you actually close space for intersex peoples who don't fit into a marriage model and anyone who actually is a marriage resistor for whatever reason. Um, but uh, by doing that, you have to then, you've got to shift your ideal. So if your ideal before the Reformation was monastic celibacy, and now all of a sudden you're saying, hey, get married, you've got to change the ideal. You've got to say, oh, not only is marriage good, but married sex is good and it's godly and you are doing a good and godly Christian thing to be married and to procreate and to have a family. Um, and that's not that getting married and having children is a bad thing, like to be clear, like that's a, it, you know, but being told that you must do something to the exclusion of all other things and all other ways of being Christian is where you encounter problems. Um, and I just want to, um, I mean, you, you kind of had an article recently published about this secularism thing, but I just want to name that. I, yeah, I don't think any of the ways that gender is structured in society today comes from God, um, you know, largely. Uh, I think it comes externally from culture and, you know, patriarchy exists at a point in time when then we start hearing about this divine figure who is the Hebrew God. Wait, Karen Pack is here. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> Yay! <laughs> if at any point you need to interject to correct us, Karen, let us know. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we get this point in history where all of a sudden there's a group of people talking about a God who is like this. Uh, and uh, I think it's in that, that patriarchal cultural context uh, where gender roles are assigned as they are. Um, and I actually think that what we see is an alternative voice 
into the culture um, that is actually trying to resist uh, that patriarchal construct of saying actually some humans can have uh, these roles and have more autonomy in their life and more freedom in their life and be respected and actually be valued more. That's men, um, in case you were wondering. Um, and some aren't. And, uh, and in that is a very big uh, resistance to anyone in between as well. Uh, and so all of our like anti-trans rhetoric that we've had, you know, coming from Christians in the last few weeks, I want to say that's a, that's a, that's patriarchal patriarchy speaking that and this inherited way of doing things for so long, which when anyone who comes along who resists that or confronts that, that's challenging patriarchy and not a godly design of of humanhood. Um, and a godly design of humanhood is actually like we see Tamar is the first who names God. It says the God who sees, Elroy. Like I'm like, that's the God that I believe in who uplifts that woman. Um, and, you know, it's in, it's in Mary who at the start of the gospel like preaches and tells the whole story of what's about to happen in the gospel of Luke is like God's going to overturn and subvert these structures of hierarchy and lift up the lowly and bring down the powerful. You know, that's in the words of a woman, um, you know, and I just see, you know, I can kind of bang on about that for a little while. And, you know, my, my thesis on Unix about this, like these figures kind of bend those norms uplifted as models of the kingdom of heaven I'm like that's the voice that I see uh, and the voice that actually reverts to uh, actually men do this women do this uh, and there's not much space to move I see that as an external force that is cultural and contextual and to into which God speaks something different or at least this figure of God speaks something different um, You've got a microphone in your hand. Do you want to add anything? I do. Kind of the point I wanted to bring up was a while ago, but I was so enraptured that I couldn't say anything. Um, sorry. Yeah. And then kind of just riffing off that as well, what gets me frustrated is God is a being who is so expansive in all that they include, uh, is so imaginative in what they create. And then based off a creation story that is most likely riffing off of the creation stories that were written at the time, the culture has now developed a place where everyone is reduced down to what they function as in a reproductive couple, which is really frustrating and really upsetting to me, not only as a trans person, but as someone that that also wipes out a bunch of cis people that aren't included in that either. And it frustrates me that A, the roles get assigned based on something that you have no choice in whatsoever and B that it then is like, Hey, if you're infertile, does that not mean that you're a man or a woman anymore? Hey, if you don't have the genitals that were assigned to your gender at birth, are you not a man or a woman anymore? It's just very reductive and so constrictive for a God that we know and see is so expansive and loving and imaginative. And that's not what we're seeing as culture. We're seeing that people are trying to so aggressively put you into a box that does not and cannot include everyone. And they're just saying, oh, we'll just leave those people on the outside. And we don't really care what happens to them because they're not fitting in where we want them to. <laughs> just grab and keep talking. Um, when I was talking about 
systems of binaries before and and so like the man woman and the value attached to that uh rosie bray dotty who is one of my favorite theorists who uh develops uh, ideas around post-humanism uh when she's writing about the these systems of binaries within uh secular humanism bray dotty kind of says you know all of us are human it's just that some of us are more human than other people um and that's kind of what the, that those systems do you know if you're on the male side if you're on the straight side it's like oh you're you're more human you're still human but you know yeah and that's what we need to shift because actually we're all human and we should all be as human as each other yeah that's beautiful um I wanted to briefly touch uh, ask you one question about um like often there's a very binary view of sex and that sex and gender you know that kind of goes together I just wanted to you know break that open a little bit and ask like what's what's the complexity of sex uh, or how we understand sex uh, and what do you think is the relationship between sex and gender what's the complexity of like sexed bodies is that what you're asking uh, <laughs> uh, not a biologist don't know <laughs> um I mean I feel like gender gender is always connected to your sexed body but not always in the way we are taught it should be um does that I make love sense? that can you say that again so gender is always connected to your sexed body but not always in the way that we're taught it will be or should be um you know so we're taught that if you are born with a certain set of body parts and no one really ever checks your hormones at birth. So we assume that that's what's there. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, and that's like, there are people who do not know they have, an in, they have an intersex variation until they, for instance, don't get a period or can't conceive or something like this. Um, uh, you know, because like right at the start, when we were talking about our own experiences of gender and I was saying, you know, gender is how we, attribute meaning to other people's bodies we are we're kind of trained to make an assumption that that person that I see that has a certain shaped body and dresses a certain way I'm reading them as woman I'm therefore making a whole set of assumptions about you uh, and we can think about that even in the fact that like everything gets gendered unnecessarily like alcoholic beverages is a beer masculine and a rosé is feminine but like it is you know or like you know that's a girly drink and like but so if I've read someone as woman and you know you go to buy them you make choices about what I'm going to buy you what you might want to eat whether or not you're on a diet all these things that like it's that are arbitrary really um uh, what is so we're making assumptions about character based on what we're seeing in a body which is both what we're seeing you know in an actual physical body and making assumptions about biology and chemistry but also in terms of what's being presented to us and we do the same when you know when people joke about having like a you know a gaydar or whatever that we're still making assumptions about a person's sexuality based on how they are presenting we may or may not be right um so there are connections between your physical body and your gender, but they're not always the obvious one. You might be born with a body that is very, you, you know, you could be me with a very feminine body and be dressed in a very certain way, but then when actually asked about it, not 
have a feminine gender identity or or think of yourself in that way and that's fine but even even in in having a non-conforming or a genderqueer identity or whatever your chosen um you know preferred terminology or way of explaining that is it's still a response to the body and how other people have read your body and how you have read your body it's just a jumping off point really um I love that distinction as well Rosie because I think probably not misconceptions in this very well-educated community but misconceptions in general around non-conforming people is that they are trying or at least binary non-conforming people is that they are trying to be exactly one-to-one replication of the gender that they are inside when it's super important to uh make sure that people know that I'm a trans woman especially in a medical setting in a relationship setting it's not that I'm trying to one for one be biologically exactly similar to a cis female it's really important to make that distinction and I think it's super important for my journey and super important for where I'm at. Um, That was awesome. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, On complexity of gender and sex, I think it's honestly coming from, I don't know, like a lot of, I mean, gender is complex just in general. And so is sex as well. Um, like there is the hormonal level, there is the chromosomal level, there is a secondary sex characteristics level, there is the primary sex characteristics level that- Can you explain primary sex characteristics and secondary? Um, Your primary sex characteristics are the reproductive system that you were born with. Your secondary sex characteristics is things like uh, facial hair for people assigned male at birth, uh, fat distribution for people assigned female at birth, things like that that come through puberty. And then, Uh, Hormonal is obviously if you have estrogen or testosterone as the dominant force in your body, and then your chromosomal makeup is XX or XY or three combination, bunch of different stuff that nobody ever really gets tested unless there is something wrong that they want to get tested for. Um, Exactly. And that creates a whole mix of what is deemed as a black and white thing in society is actually really not as solid as people think it is in the world of biology and in the world of uh, blood testing and trans people and gender non-conforming people. I think that complexity really leans into a gender expansive view of the world simply because it, it cannot be black and white. That is not how our bodies work. That is not how hormones work. Like for me, I am, you know, a mishmash, a mishmash of everything. I haven't tested my chromosomes, by the way. Um, I have no idea, so I won't assume. Um, but like, I have a primarily uh, estrogen-dominated body. I have some secondary sex characteristics, but my primary sex characteristics are that of someone assigned male at birth. I think the fact that there are so many different ways to describe that just empowers those who live outside the gender spectrum so much more. Yeah, love that. Thank you for explaining that. And also some uh, research that's been that's gone on about like brain imaging and brain scans um, to kind of like show that people's like brains are biologically more male or female, but like then this breadth of gender that kind of goes across with like little peaks at male and little peaks at female and just the diversity of sex from a brain don't ask me to expand on that any further um I can refer you to <laughs> I will briefly and so you know uh, writers like Anne Faso Sterling will talk about 
that sort of thing. But also say that, you know, our brains are really malleable and adaptable. And this is where we have to remember about gender as being social because the problem with some of, I don't know about this study in particular, but with the problem is some of these tests and studies that are testing for, you know, aptitudes and gender difference in all sorts of things, you know, like it can be things as simple as, you know, your ability to do maths and science or whatever. But if, if you're constantly... If you, know, if you give your boy child toys that encourage him to, to play with, you know, essentially do engineering um, because you've given, you know, building toys and, and you encourage that and you don't give that to your girl child and you push her in other directions, there will be social reasons for why girls don't always test well at engineering, at sciences, at these sorts of things. And it's because we've not provided that opportunity. It's why it's always a bit of a cop out to be like, boys are bad at relational skills, at communicating, um, you know, at emotional intelligence. It's like, well, are they inherently bad at it or did you forget to teach them how to do that? Um, you know, <laughs> and so, but your brain will adapt. If you're not giving your brain the, the exercise it requires to be good at certain things, there may be gender differences in your brain, in your ability, in your aptitude that may be how you were born and may not be. Uh, and that's where everything gets complex. <laughs> I love this. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question and then I want to leave space for any questions from the audience. So if you have a question, uh, now's a good time just to think about it. Um, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is the place of gender in the Christian faith? How do gender and faith go together? Um, I can have a go first if you need some time. Question, like, I'm just like, do we? So I'll just start. I'll start, and we'll see where we springboard. Um, Because for me and my experience of gender, and I think we'll probably have different views on this and different perspectives on this. That's not okay. Um, for me and my experience of gender and gender being something that is just that thing under the rug kicked over there that doesn't mean anything to me and I'm an expression of myself regardless of gender and I'll kind of float in between spaces that the world says are male and female or that the world says is masculine and feminine and I know that's not just an exclusively gender fluid non-binary experience but um, for me like I, I think the place of gender in faith is extremely minimal. Again, you might disagree with this um, because I, and, and it's, it's just a confirmation of my own experience and what I read in the Bible around um, the God who is beyond gender, the God who creates in the image male and female uh, and everything in between. You know, when we say God is the alpha and the omega, we mean God is the beginning and the end and everything in between. When we say God created male and female, I think that that's to say that God created male and female and everything in between. Um, and that's an ex- that's some sort of image of who God is. And so wherever you land gender-wise, uh, for me, it doesn't matter. What matters is um, are you extending grace? 
Are you expressing love? Do you care about your neighbour? Do you see your interconnectedness of life with the rest of the world and see that someone else and other life should be respected as inherently good as you are? Um, you know, do you care about justice? Um, are you working to uh, confront systems which put other people down? You know, I'm just like, and what's the role of gender in there as what I see my Christian faith as? Um, yeah, is just very minimal. So that's my little yeah. answer to maybe springboard yeah. us off. No, that's helpful. And so I think that in response to that, I would say, well, there are two ways of thinking about the question of what is the role of gender and faith. And so one of them, and I think what you're talking about in terms of like does does my particular gendered identity or gendered presentation, uh, you know, does that, you know, limit or help me be a Christian person um, or pursue Christ-likeness, then I would agree with you and say it has very minimal effect because those sorts of qualities that you're just mentioning about pursuing justice, about being compassionate, um, aren't gendered and everyone has a capacity to, to, pursue and practice those things and in fact everyone is called to do that uh we're all called called to model christ uh not just men <laughs> that's a call on everyone um so in that sense very little but actually on the flip side i would also say that because because society is gendered and because we read humans as gendered people uh, gender has a huge impact on your experience of faith um, and that particularly if you've grown up in um, complementarian churches where there are actually very specific uh, let's call them rules for, for what you can and can't do in that parish um, based on whether you are understood to be a man or a woman and often whether you are understood to be straight or otherwise uh, then it's going to have a huge impact on how you can participate in that church and and it will be limiting on everyone uh, but it will be more harshly felt by women and by queer and non-binary Christians um, and I would push that even further and say that um, you know if you have if your religion encourage, like if your lived religion and religious practice encourages gendered pathways for participating in church, uh, men and women and intersex people and uh, non-binary people will have a different experience of church. And they may or may not even understand God to be the same. I mean, I can, but I feel like you guys have covered it beautifully. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, the way I feel about it is definitely from the perspective of that it, it should not be treated differently across gender at all. The way that you interact with God, the way that you interact with the church. Um, thing I wanted to add is just from a communal and social perspective, I think it is very important for people to be able to meet with people that they feel are like them and are comfortable with. I think for some people that might just be people of the same gender and that there is a uh, bonus to, or there is a social and emotional value to meeting with people that uh, look like you and you know that you can be comfortable with um, because there could be people coming into the church that have trauma with specific gender. It could be people coming into the church that uh, are very nervous to talk to other people. 
Um, but that is not the end solution because then there are still people that we will leave out because of that. So it needs to be more expansive. I think it's more a sign of the uh, systemic issues of our society that we don't have enough different classifications for those people in the church. But I think it's still incredibly important that you see people like you at church that you can be comfortable with and talk to and be emotionally open with. Thank you both. Uh, any questions from the floor? Yeah? Do you want to just say it and then I'll repeat it? Yeah, that might be easy. Did everyone hear that question or do you need me to repeat it? Uh, Zoom, yep, good call, yep. Um, so the question from the floor is, uh, we have in the Christian tradition uh, definitions of biblical masculinity and definitions of biblical femininity. Um, do you think that, and they, that that's problematic for all sorts of reasons. For example, there's no biblical gender fluid non-binary expression. Um, to sex. Um, so should we be trying to reclaim or, you know, re-express what biblical masculinity and what biblical femininity are, or should we be just be trying to scrap those things altogether? So I'm going to be really annoying and say yes and no. <laughs> um, so I think something that I think is important, and I think that this is I'm going to take a huge leap here and say what I'm about to articulate is probably important across all sorts of spaces. And I think that having a scaled response to things is really important. And that might be the same how you approach things like, do I leave my conservative church, for instance? You know, sometimes it will be right to leave and sometimes it won't be. Uh, and there will be a whole heap of factors that play into that. So I think that, um, you know, on, on the one hand, uh, you know, if, if it's affirming to you to understand, you know, your masculinity or your femininity or your non-binaryness as biblical, then I think that's a good framework to think through that. And I would say there are biblical models of gender uh, queer expression. And I think that we see that in things like the praise of barren women in the Old Testament, um, the, the place of eunuchs in the kingdom of God, um, you know, that, that that in itself is saying, you know, th these people didn't fit a typical model for the norm and, but they are welcome in this community. Um, and I think that we should absolutely hold that up as a biblical model. Um, I think that we're all called to be, and, and I mean all called to be sons of God and all called to be a bride of Christ. And again, that it is also a really biblical model that every one of us is simultaneously a son and a bride. And to me, I mean, obviously there are problems around that language, but to be both of those things at once, uh, there, there is, you know, there's sacred meaning attached to that. And I think that's really important. And I would be all about reclaiming that and holding that up 
as biblical. I think though, if your use of the phrase biblical masculinity or biblical marriage or biblical anything is, um, is used to limit what counts as faithful expression, then we have a problem. And I think that's probably what I'm always banging on about. Like, that, you know, when, if you use language in a way to limit what counts as good faith or good practice, as you know, as orthodoxy, um, then you're limiting how people can live their lives and how they can understand themselves. And I don't want that. And I, and I don't want to flip that and say, this is what, you know, you were told biblical masculinity was this, reject it but do this like that's just as um problematic so you know I think that there are models in the bible that we should be holding up for how to live I'd want to go back to what Steph was saying before about being you know seeking and pursuing justice and mercy and compassion that those things should be our models of biblical manhood and womanhood and everything elsehood um and and that's great Um, yeah, I would always, I would also want to add just the, you know, the definitions of biblical masculinity and biblical femininity in the way that they've been used have been to take models that are descriptive of a very patriarchal world uh, and that they're describing a society in which some of those uh, passages were meant to read and go, gosh, that's awful and I cannot believe that happened. Uh, for instance, one of those very viscerally confronting passages is uh, Judges 19, which is an awfully sexually violent, uh, you know, I just think we see these things and it's like, you know, nowhere in here is a model of good humanity, you know, or good masculinity. And so let's not uplift that. Um, you know, I'm kind of going to a very extreme example there, but I think often what has been problematic has been that we've taken that cultural stuff that actually isn't the godly stuff. Uh, and I think what we see in the model of Jesus as well, we haven't really talked about like Jesus and is it problematic that Jesus is a man and that God came as a man. And I thought we would go there, but we haven't yet. Um, but I think what, uh, what I have seen uh, is that Jesus uh, both kind of fulfills the masculine ideal of the day, and resists it as well. Uh, and yeah, we, we see that very confrontingly on a cross in the way that he is stripped and shamed uh, and penetrated and, you know, all these things where he is feminized at that point uh, and resists male spaces and confronts patriarchy confronts masculinity uh, and says do it differently uh, and not part of my kingdom and actually I'm going to choose you person over here who you never thought you know the Samaritan woman is one that we've recently talked about you know is the first person who, pre who goes and procla proclaims the gospel in the, the gospel of John um, you know and I think that what we don't do is pull out the right examples or the right stories for our model of biblical masculinity or biblical femininity um, but I mean, again, as a gender fluid human, I'm just like, why don't we just do personhood? Uh, and I do want to advocate that maybe we get rid of those or scrap them. But, um, you know, why can't we all just be humans and people uh, and be, you know, that's just like, and then you go and do your gender thing that you gender people do. <laughs> like whatever that, like, yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks, friend. Did you want to add anything? Okay, <laughs> great. Uh, any other questions from the floor?
Yeah, so just summarising on the mic. So uh, some Christians will go to examples in the Bible of hierarchy between uh, male and female. So Adam is created first, then Eve. Or in the New Testament, we get this idea of Jesus as the head of the church uh, and then men are the head of the, the home. Or, um, I mean, I actually think, do, were you going to go? I actually think that image of Jesus as the head of the church is to say actually there's no other head here but Jesus Um, and we get a a completely differing description of the church. Like we all talk about the church as the body of Christ with no head. Let that sink in. Um, You know, so I'm just kind of like there are alternative descriptions. I think it's actually confronting headship. Again, I think a lot of that family stuff is cultural uh, and that, you know, we read into those passages that you are to actually submit to one another, right? Wild. Paul, (laughs) scandalous. Um, Yeah, and just this, like, confronting of, I think, categories that happens. Um, I think also there are two different creation myths as well um, and, a, and a kind of Jewish tradition of that being that that was like an androgynous human being at the start as well so there's fun things there um, yeah I think that there's a recorded sermon of yours potentially a, around Genesis that you've done um, on the podcasts which you delve into that really deeply yeah, Karen's got notes on Genesis. We've gone there. Basically, we disrupted it, you know. Did you want to talk? Oh, you want to got a question? Yeah, so question from Karen is, um, so talking about sort of scrapping gendered categories and going to personhood, when we think about that in maybe the category of race and culture, culture and how meaningful that is for, for some people, you know, and particularly with images in the Bible of like all the family and not uh, erasing the importance of race and culture to people. How do we not do that same thing on the gender uh, expression or identity? How do we talk about gender uh, church that doesn't raise that that's meaningful might be meaningful for people so that's summarizing it recognizes the spectrum yeah definitely it re- yeah so in a way you're yeah it's about emphasizing that there is difference and not losing the importance of recognizing the diversity of gender yeah 
I'm like, okay, what are I to stop? <laughs> I mean, I feel like, you know, on the one hand, you know, so when you, when we read Revelation, we have things like that people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So we know that, you know, that race doesn't get erased in that sense. And, um, and we see that in that vision. And I guess that's the same. We also know we get raised in different kinds of bodies. And what does that even mean? Like I say, we know this, but, <laughs> um, uh, and so I kind of want to hold that at the back of my mind as I think about this. And I think that, what I would want to think about is that um, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to erase gender in the sense of saying that everyone's experience is the same. I don't think that's helpful because I think that we know that that's not true. Um, I think what I would want to say, like, and when I was talking at the start about gender being, you know, how we attach, like how we attribute social meaning to bodies, like at the moment, and I said that, you know, gender is a way of thinking about inequalities and why certain bodies and certain people get more access to certain spaces or move more easily through the world. Why is it that some people worry about walking home at night, but other people don't? And those things are gendered experiences. And I want to get rid of those discrepancies in gendered experience. And I'd want to think about how do we erase those disparities and differences so that we're not denying, you know, it's not that you can't think of yourself as a woman or as Sammy was saying, like, it's important to think of myself as a trans woman, like, and those specificities and that they mean things and that's okay. But like, wouldn't it be great if you could be that and also know that you had the same access to spaces and opportunities and, and that, you know, you were equally safe from, from violence. Um, and that's a, bigger vision I, I think that's what I would want to be trying to minimize is that like minimize the, the gender differences that that are about gendered inequality while retaining the and and celebrating the fact that yeah we are different I mean sorry I'm gonna <laughs> when I when, so I interviewed a lot of people about their experiences of like complementarianism and you know the way that people use the phrase equal but different and what I found really interesting was um and what I would say is problematic about that phrase is the but different because the but different detracts from equality and what I would want to say is that we're different and equal um, and that, you know, we can recognize that difference and celebrate it. And what was interesting to me was that even conservative Christians I spoke to, that's what they wanted to do with that phrase. And it's why they, they would stumble around this idea of that they were like, oh, I'm just worried about erasing gender. But when I spoke to them about what they thought that meant they were worried about like you know they were like well but you know being you know women have things that are, are beautiful and wonderful and so do men and so do other people and like everyone has experiences I want to learn from um but it was all muddled up in this idea of like gender neutrality was erasing the the specifics of them um you know so it all these things are messy and complex, right? But I think that it's really important to actually be like, we can celebrate difference and we should celebrate difference, but our difference shouldn't be a thing that prohibits us from, from opportunities, from access to space. Um, that's a long way of answering that question, but that's where I'd go. <laughs> um, the only thing I have to add on is 
I guess on, on both sides of people who are cis and trans and non-binary, on the trans and non-binary side, I think initially, like both in the public eye and personally, you see so much pushback against this kind of stuff because in the initial experiences of discovering your gender, it is so incredibly painful to know that I will never be cis. I will never have those things that cis women have or from a trans masculine perspective, like I'll never be cis. That's incredibly painful in the first couple of months or years or however long your timeline is for gender transition. So that is often like for me, that was initially where my pushback came from. I don't want to hear about these things. I don't want to hear about us being different because it's really painful to me. Um, on the journey to acceptance, it then turns into, hey, uh, we're all humans. We're all, if you're cis or trans masculine, we're all males. If you're cis or trans masculine, we're all female, trans feminine, we're all females. Like that's amazing. And it expands the umbrella of what gender is. And that's beautiful. So I think that's where some of the kind of trying to smooth gender over into just like a monogamous thing is bad. It's just because it's painful for trans people in the beginning. I then think it's on us as trans and non-binary people to constantly be aware of that, that I need to constantly uh, remind myself like, hey, it's not just your experience, it's everyone's experience. And I need to uh, leave space for that. And I always do, like everyone leaves space for me. Um, it's just a give and take. That's the only thing I really wanted to add. I love that. Um, does anyone have a burning question? Because I think that's a really beautiful place to end us. Um, any other burning questions from the audience? Um, thank you so much to Rosie and Sammy for sharing your beautiful wisdom with us.